welcome to Rising. I'm thrilled to be back at the desk today with a new name. I'm going by Amber Duke, my married name now. And I'm thrilled to be joined as well remotely by Jessica Burbank. Congratulations to you, Amber. It's good to be with you all. Happy Friday. Absolutely. Well, Jessica, uh, unfortunately, we start off with some sad news. Hundreds of local and federal police are still on a manhunt for the man accused of shooting and killing 18 people at a main bowling alley and bar on Wednesday night. A sister-in-law to the suspect, 40-year-old Robert Card, confirmed to the Wall Street Journal that he received two weeks of inpatient psychiatric treatment over this past summer as he was hearing voices. She said he started believing he could hear people say awful things about him. A former neighbor told the New York Post that Card, an Army firearms instructor, is capable of, quote, hiding for a long time. The neighbor added, quote, if you know the area, there's a lot of places you can hide. You could never see something like that from an airplane or helicopter. Other family members of Cards have told media they've texted him, begging him to surrender. But for now, the search continues. Meanwhile, down on Capitol Hill, Maine Representative Jared Golden reversed his long-held commitments to the Second Amendment and called for a national assault weapons ban. Let's watch. Things happen that bring your worst nightmares to life. Yesterday, this is what happened in Lewiston. At a time like this, a leader is forced to grapple with things that are far greater than his or herself. Humility is called for as accountability is sought by the victims of a tragedy such as this one. Out of fear of this dangerous world that we live in and my determination to protect my own daughter and wife in our home and in our community, because of a false confidence that our community was above this and that we could be in full control among many other misjudgments, I have opposed efforts to ban deadly weapons of war like the assault rifle used to carry out this crime. The time has now come for me to take responsibility for this failure, which is why I now call on the United States Congress to ban assault rifles like the one used by the sick perpetrator of this mass killing in my hometown of Lewis and Maine. For the good of my community, I will work with any colleague to get this done in the time that I have left in Congress. To the people of Lewiston, my constituents throughout the second district, to the families who lost loved ones, and to those who have been harmed, I ask for forgiveness and support as I seek to put an end to these terrible shootings. It's always sad when we have one of these mass shootings. We think about all of the lives lost. Uh, I hear him call the perpetrator of this a sick perpetrator. And I think of the use of the word sick. We often say sick and twisted when we think about serial killers and people committing these crimes. But also when someone calls in sick to work, you don't think of sick in that sense. But when we talk about mental illness, I think it's important that we do, because this was another one of those cases where people close to him were familiar with his mental state over the summer, where while he was at a training facility, a shooting range with other soldiers, he said he heard voices in his head telling them to, sh to telling him rather to shoot them. And I think that's a clear sign that this is someone who needed a lot of mental health care, needed help from his community and family and didn't receive it. And I think so many cases of mass shootings are just examples of failures of communities to address mental health care and people around them who are sick and systemic failures to provide proper care to veterans once they come home from, from serving.
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. He only spent two weeks in this inpatient facility. And if you're at the point where you're hearing voices in your head that are telling you to commit violence, two weeks doesn't seem like nearly enough time to have that situation fixed before you go back out into society. Clearly, he was still struggling with some issues prior to committing this heinous act. And you're exactly right. This seems to be a common thread among these mass shootings, where people around the suspect repeatedly say, we either told law enforcement or we you know, sent signals to the FBI that something was wrong and they didn't follow up on it. Perfect example was in the Parkland school shooting down in Florida. That individual had been uh, allegedly reported to the FBI on perhaps as many of uh, a dozen different occasions, and the FBI never followed up. They never coordinated with the local police to make sure that this individual not only didn't have access to firearms, but also was going through treatment. He was completely left out um, of any type of care. And uh, it's it seems like— um, Whenever these things happen, people don't want to talk about the larger societal trends in a decline in uh, mental well-being, especially of our young people. We are now facing a period of time where our young people are prescribed antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication at record levels. They report having mental illness at record levels, and they go on social media websites like TikTok and Instagram where mental illness is even glorified and treated like something that's trendy. And uh, more people, uh, especially young people, report being lonely than ever before. And we don't seem to be doing anything or even discussing that as a real problem um, and trying to address the root issues of why so many people are lashing out, particularly in terms of these random violent events. Yeah, and it's often described as the, the hard policy approach to address those problems. That takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of time. It probably takes reckoning with a lot of bureaucratic agencies uh, like the VA ensuring that it gets more funding, ensuring that that funding is allocated properly. We have over 30,000 veterans from the post 9-11 wars in Iraq and Afghanistan who have committed suicide, which is four times the amount of troops we lost in combat. That number should startle everyone. We need better mental health care for our veterans especially. And then when we think about things like the FDA, not really regulating our foods very well where the same foods we eat in the United States are illegal in other countries. These are messing with our internal organs. They're messing with the chemical makeup within our body. I'm sure there are mental health ramifications. So many people who study neuroscience say that there's a, a gut-mind connection and that your mental health is determined by the food you eat and the quality of it. There are so many things we could trace. Uh, to a lot of the mental health issues, we experience the loneliness. I think a lot of children are losing meaning. There's not a lot of places for children to play outside with each other. Our outside that we've created, you'll see the photos on the internet. It's gray strip malls and highways that are overrun by cars. We really need to invest in community, I think, so that kids have meaning so that they don't have these issues of loneliness. And is this really the hard policy solution? Or is the, the hard policy response to make this issue uh, about banning weapons when really what we need to do is the hard policy work uh, of investing in our communities? It, it's, I think, a lot harder to make this issue about guns and try and do the politically impossible and ban weapons in the United States of America and allow mass shootings to continue to happen. I think it's much harder to continue to lose Americans in mass shootings than to do something meaningful legislatively. 
Yeah, it's really a shame because this is something that affects people, of course, beyond the mass shootings, because when you have people who are suffering from a mental illness epidemic, you have people who are dropping dead daily from overdoses. You have people who are dying by suicide. You have cases like this where people lash out um, and try to get attention by committing mass shootings. All of these situations are rooted from the same problem of people feeling disconnected from one another and lashing out for help in the most horrible of ways as sort of a last resort. And your point about community is so important. Um, I always think about at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, when we talked about lockdowns and 15 days to slow the spread, the first things that were shut down in society were the places that people typically go in order to find community with other people and the ability to find support, whether that was churches, small businesses, community centers, parks. I mean, there were cases where moms were threatened with arrest because they took their kid to a public park so they could go outside and play. People were discouraged from being outside exercising, told, it, told that if they went for a run, they had to wear a mask. And I think it's indicative of a deeper sickness in society when the things that our public health officials or the things that our pol politicians target first, more than anything, are the places and things and activities that people use in order to help their mental health. It's important you brought up earlier, I wanna go back to it, the FBI not investigating when they are flagged about folks with mental health issues. We think about the FBI in a really pejorative sense on the right and the left in the United States today because of how they have used their personnel and resources to investigate citizens that we don't deem particularly threatening to the population of us in the United States. The mistrust we have in government because of how our institutions have been used against our own citizens is precisely why so many working class people across the United States do not want weapons to be banned in the United States. When I think about why I have a firearm, it's because I don't really trust the police to come and protect me if someone comes onto the property that I live on. A lot of people don't even think the police could get there in time if they do feel that they can call the police and the police will help this situation. Also, when we think about the larger weapons like assault rifles, we go back to oftentimes why the Second Amendment was written in the first place, and it's to form a militia and also to protect against a tyrannical government. A lot of people have mistrust in the United States government, and that is why they want to have weapons. We should be dealing with that mistrust and repairing our democracy and institutions before we fault everyday working class people for having that mistrust that was created by the precise government officials that talk about these weapons bans. I really don't think anyone wants a full weapons ban who is serving in Congress today. But that is what everyday working class Americans have been made to believe by how this issue has been treated by their leaders. And that's a problem that needs to be addressed as well. And so if we don't address all of address all of this mistrust, I think this problem is going to continue to get worse. I think another reason for this mistrust is precisely because they treat veterans so badly and we don't have good health care and mental health care in the United States. And I think this issue is a lot more complex than just talking about banning weapons. I, I just really think the conversation needs to be centered around systemic uh, issues and policies that address those issues at their very root. Yeah, there's no question that when the FBI spends all of its time trying to wrap people up in this fake kidnapping case of 
Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, instead of investigating people who could be radicalized or investigating Larry Nassar, the child uh, predator who was with the U.S. gymnastics team dropping the ball in the Jeffrey Epstein case, it's no wonder that people don't trust the government and want to arm themselves just in case the government decides that it's going to use its justice arm to come after them. Um, so there's a very good reason why people in this country decide to own firearms. There's, of course, rec recreational reasons as well. I come from a family that grew up hunting and still does to this day. Um, so I agree. Branded banning weapons is not the answer, especially when they're talking about so-called assault weapons, which are usually just semi-automatic firearms, which are, of course, the most popular kind of gun for Americans to own. We're going to have to leave it there. More rising after this. U.S. forces carried out a series of airstrikes in Syria, destroying two facilities linked to Iranian-backed militia following a series of attacks on U.S. forces in the region. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said in a statement yesterday the facilities were believed to be run by Iran Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard and that the strikes were, quote, narrowly tailored in self-defense. The Biden administration has also deployed 900 more troops in the region following instability after the outbreak of violence in Israel-Palestine. The White House press secretary discussed the attacks on U.S. personnel as well as Iran's possible proxy role. Let's listen in. Now, we've also seen uh, over the course of the last few days, actually the course of the last week, but certainly over the last uh, couple of days of the weekend, an uptick in rocket and drone attacks by Iranian-backed proxy groups against military bases housing U.S. personnel in Iraq and Syria. And we're deeply concerned about the potential for any significant escalation of these attacks in the days ahead. At the direction of President Biden, the Secretary of Defense has ordered the military to take steps to prepare for this to ensure that we're postured appropriately, both in terms of being able to defend our forces and respond decisively as needed. The Secretary of Defense has directed two carrier strike groups to the region, and we are now sending more air defenses to U.S. air bases in the region. Now, we know these groups are supported by the IRGC and the regime. We know Iran continues to support Hamas and Hezbollah. And we know that Iran is closely monitoring these events and, in some cases, actively facilitating these attacks and spurring on others who may want to exploit the conflict for their own good or for that of Iran. We know Iran's goal is to maintain some level of deniability here, but we're not going to allow them to do that. We also are not going to allow any threat to our interest in the region to go unchallenged. We demonstrated last, we demonstrated last week that we have and will use the military capables available to us to protect and defend those interests. And those capabilities are getting bigger and better every day. As President Biden has said, our message to any hostile actor seeking to escalate or widen this conflict is very simple. Don't do it. I feel about this conflict the way I think a lot of Americans with loved ones who have gone out to serve before, and it's that it, it seems intentional to have left troops at U.S. bases in Iraq, in Syria, and in Yemen. It's like throwing a marshmallow into a bonfire and then saying, why is the fire burning the marshmallow? Because you left it in there. You left U.S. troops in a region that is incredibly unstable, knowing very well that the United States is backing the state of Israel in a very violent conflict with Palestine, in a war with the people living in Palestine. And I think that most Americans, when they hear Janet Yellen say we can afford two wars, 
Uh, they consider human lives, not just whether or not the Treasury can issue the American dollars. And I think that it's a terrible decision to send more troops to the Middle East when what we should have done is as soon as our ally Israel decided to escalate this conflict, we should have brought those troops home to keep them safe from retaliation uh, from a lot of groups like Iran who does support Hamas, who does support Hezbollah that we're fighting in Lebanon. And I think it's ridiculous and intentional that the administration left troops there because what does this give them an excuse for? It gives the United States military and the Biden administration an, an excuse to really escalate conflict in the region, which I think genuinely based on their actions is what this administration wants, but is very clearly what the American people do not want. We are just speed running our way into World War III at this point. They launched these strikes without any congressional oversight, which is sort of the de facto uh, way that the military establishment conducts business nowadays. They just do whatever they want without Congress's input, without the American people's input, and they play this game of asking for forgiveness rather than permission. And unfortunately, I don't understand why troops are still in Syria to begin with. Um, actually, there is a Biden administration official from the Pentagon who was apparently explaining why we were still there. And rather than any kind of national security concern, she says that the U.S. military is there so that the U.S. can own Syria's resource-rich Northeast, where the oil and wheat is, to give the U.S. and to give the U.S. leverage over Syria's political future, which is another way of saying regime change, because they still want to take out Assad and his, his uh, political allies. Um, when you go back to the 2020 presidential, or rather 20, yeah, 2020 presidential primary with, on the Democratic side, Tulsi Gabbard was accused of being a Russia plant because she questioned the dedication to regime change in Syria, as well as the endless wars that we keep getting involved in in the Middle East. But she was really speaking for the American populace, who doesn't understand why they're supposed to send their sons and daughters to potentially die in a conflict that seemingly has no bearing on American national security or stability. Um, it, it seems to me like these people almost get off on warmongering. I mean, truly, they get excited about it. When the Hamas attack first happened on October 7th, the reaction from so many on social media immediately was getting jazzed up about the idea of bombing Gaza and bombing Palestinians and of the U.S. potentially getting involved. And now more troops are going overseas to get involved in this conflict. I think it's despicable. There's no reason that we need to be getting involved in a centuries-old land dispute. Um, but here we are, because a lot of people make a lot of money by getting involved in these conflicts. Yeah, there was leaked audio in, of investors on Wall Street this past week discussing how much money they could make off of Lockheed Martin, Raytheon stocks because of the conflict in Israel. They said the quiet part out loud. And I think anyone in the United States of America that cares about democracy, that is a constitutional lawyer, lawyer should consider questioning whether or not we've stuck to the United States Constitution and honestly, whether or not the War Powers Act of 1973 is constitutional. So you have the Constitution outlining that Congress must declare war for the United States to be at war. Of course, now we have all of these gray areas where the US just sends money 
just sends weapons and supports all of these proxy wars without ever declaring war on another country. You have the War Powers Act of 1973 saying that the president, the administration, can send troops abroad so long as they remain for 60 days or so and give Congress 48 hours notice. That shouldn't be enough. That is not what our Constitution says. I really think we need a reckoning with, with what is written in the Constitution. Consider what is the best for a democracy. Elected representatives of the people in Congress should have to vote to authorize military action uh, and military spending. The Pentagon shouldn't be able to find $6.2 billion under their couch cushions and then say, we're going to give it to Ukraine because that's what we've decided and we found it so we don't have to go with any other sort of procedures for approval in how we spend this money. That is ridiculous. That is not a functioning democracy. When you have 41% of the country even questioning whether or not the United States should send weapons to Israel, and yet we have sent them $158 billion to date, we really have to question the sanctity of our democracy. And I really think it's time for a constitutional challenge of how war is done in the United States of America and really rein it in so that Congress approves whenever troops, whenever weapons, and whenever money is sent out for wars abroad. I always think back to 2016 when these types of things happen and really the tenor of that presidential contest. And namely the fact that at that time, former President Donald Trump was really the only person who was talking about foreign policy in a way that exercised some modicum of restraint and acknowledged the sacrifices that working class people and their family members have to make on behalf of the military industrial complex. And to me, that was the key reason why so many establishment politicians on both the Republican and Democratic side, as well as the mainstream media, despised him because he was taking away their cash cow. And they all somehow claimed that his tenor on foreign policy was going to get us into World War III, that we were going to be nuked by North Korea, that Russia was going to come after us, that he was too cozy uh, with dictators around the world, when clearly what he was doing was trying to develop some kind of relationship to keep these people in check so that they didn't feel the need to lash out and demonstrate their power. He did it actually kind of expertly. Now we get Biden in there, who has been on the wrong side of every foreign policy decision in his entire career in politics. And within just a couple of years, the world has been thrown into disarray, and we are now sending more troops abroad and launching missile strikes and getting ourselves into more conflict than ever. I think back to what Truman said back in the 40s when Israel was created as a state. He talked about how the conflict existed in the region and how either group didn't want the other group there, wanted to drive the other group into the sea. The difference being that the people of Palestine were there before a lot of boats arrived carrying Jewish people coming over from Europe to create the state of Israel. He described that conflict, describing both sides. Then you have Joe Biden giving a speech on the floor of Congress in 1986. And what he said is we need an Israel to protect US interests in the region. This is precisely why we've become a target and why our troops and our bases, whether or not they should be there, are a target in the Middle East because they recognize that the United States is fighting for the United States interests. But who within the United States? The elites who stand to profit from these wars, whether we want to talk about oil, whether we want to talk about Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, they're not taking the human calculation of lives lost because apparently the working class is expendable to many of our leaders. And so when we think about 
having an ounce of responsibility. I think back to Jimmy Carter's interview on the issue in 2013, when he discussed what was going on in the region. And he said, you know, the Netanyahu regime really doesn't seem to want a two state solution. It seems he wants a one state solution. And that is dangerous. And that is terrible even for Israel. So when we think about the United States backing the creation of Israel, that was a very different state from when Joe Biden gave the speech saying we need an Israel to protect our interests in the region. And that Israel was also very different when the Netanyahu regime was in power and when Jimmy Carter is talking about how he's dangerous. We really need to reevaluate who our ally is because who our ally is changes based on who is in the leadership of that country and quite frankly, how that country's borders change in the case of Israel-Palestine. We've created so much instability in the Middle East, thinking in the short term, protecting our short-term interests, our profits that quarter or that year for the executives who stand to profit off of these conflicts, not thinking of the long-term conflicts on the country mental health-wise, not thinking of the long-term uh, interests of the country when we talk about people losing their lives in this war and the ramifications of, of having wars abroad and then all of the young people grow up to hate the United States because we've caused all this instability in the region. A lot of our enemies are broader and enemies we've created, quite frankly. And it's time we end that terrible cycle and, and be really honest about when we want to send troops and why. And if we're making this situation better or worse by being a presence in the region. We'll be right back with more Rising after this. Palestinian officials have released a list of over 6,700 names of Palestinians they claim were killed in Gaza since the outbreak of the conflict with Israel earlier in the month. This comes after President Biden expressed doubts about the Palestinian death toll, which is provided by Gaza's Ministry of Health, an agency in the Hamas-controlled government. If you missed those comments, let's take a look. In the 18 days since Hamas, Hamas killed 1,400 Israelis, the Hamas-controlled Gaza Health Ministry says Israeli forces have killed over 6,000 Palestinians, including 2,700 children. You've previously asked Netanyahu to minimize civilian casualties. Do these numbers say to you that he is ignoring that message? What they say to me is I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. I'm sure innocents have been killed, and it's the price of waging a war. Israeli Defense Forces International spokesperson Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conrique spoke to CNN about whether the number of targets hit by Israeli airstrikes uh, are close to 7,000 dead. Let's watch that. Uh, no, I cannot. I can say that it depends on the night. We have indeed struck many targets in the Gaza Strip uh, of various sizes and of various types. We have struck between 200 and 400 targets each day, each 24 hours, so it depends. Uh, we will be doing some kind of a, an interim, interim summary uh, in terms of the activity of our troops and the activity of the Air Force, uh, but I can assure you that we are striking Hamas wherever they are, wherever they're hiding. We're trying to uh, really weaken their military capabilities and prepare the battlefield for the next stages. Meanwhile, 10 humanitarian aid trucks, including six from the Red Cross, made it into the Gaza Strip on Friday, bringing the total to 84 in the past week. 
However, there is still no agreement to get fuel into Gaza, and the UN Palestinian Refugee Agency has said the absence of fuel was jeopardizing life-saving humanitarian operations there. Former Obama staffer-turned-podcaster Tommy Viator noted on X, This article suggests there's no clear strategy behind Netanyahu's bombing campaign in Gaza. Meanwhile, thousands of civilians are getting killed. The U.S. should push for a ceasefire to allow in humanitarian supplies and demand to see a coherent strategy. Jessica, what did you make of Biden's response there, where he cast doubt on the official count of the number of Palestinians dead? And my initial reaction to that is whether it's, you know, 4,000, 6,000, 2,000, it's obviously still a significant number of civilian casualties. I think the question is whether or not Israel is able to actually reduce those in a meaningful capacity while still being able to target Hamas and root them out of the Gaza Strip. I think it's ridiculous, Biden's comments, especially considering that the health ministry is the data source that the State Department has used for their internal measure of how many Palestinian lives have been lost. If this is the standard, if this is what the State Department uses, yet Biden is casting doubt on it in public, it seems pretty clear to me that Biden is saying this for political reasons because there's been so much outrage about how many Palestinians have been killed. For Israel to directly say, between October 7th and October 12th, that they dropped 6,000 bombs on Gaza on a piece of land that's around the size and population of the island of Manhattan, for them to drop 4,000 tons of explosives on Gaza and then cast doubt on the fact that Palestinians have said the death toll is over 6,000 is ridiculous. It doesn't seem like there needs to be a lot of math and calculations that go into figuring out whether or not they could have killed 7,028 Palestinians, as we know is the official count, because the ministry has now released the names and the identification numbers for all of the people that they have marked as dead. There's also thousands more people who are missing, who are injured, who are under rubble, who have been trying to receive treatment in hospitals that have frankly shut down now because of lack of fuel due to the blockade on Gaza. So I think it's absolutely ridiculous that you have people like President Obama now calling for a humanitarian pause when the United States initially vetoed it. Vetoing that humanitarian pause is what allowed this death toll to climb. So to cast doubt on this death toll when you have a hand in it, not just because you funded the Israeli military, but because you vetoed a ceasefire that was voted on on the floor of the Security Council as a country, we don't have a right to cast doubt on this claims. And I think I agree with the, the minister or yes, the, the head minister of Gaza's health department, who was a surgeon, Basim uh, Naim, their spokesperson has said that the U.S. administration is devo devoid of human standards, morals, and basic human rights values for shamelessly questioning the validity of the death toll. They said, so we decided to go out and announce the names with details and names in front of the entire world to tell the truth about the genocidal war committed by the Israeli occupation against our people. I think it's ridiculous in a time of genocide to question whether or not those people existed in the first place when that many bombs are dropped. I think it's ridiculous. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of less interested in the squabbling over the official death count number and more about the conversation about what Israel's re reaction to the attack on October 7th should be. Because I think one of the issues that I have is Hamas carried out this attack, obviously knowing that Israel was going to want to respond. Then as soon as they responded, they didn't like the response and started calling for a ceasefire and crying that they were doing too much. And I think 
fundamentally, war is messy, brutal, and despicable. Civilian lives are always going to get caught up. And so to me, it's more of a question of, is Israel doing this in a, in a way that sort of inevitably is going to catch civilians up because of the way that Hamas does their operations? Or is there another military strategy that they could use that could root out Hamas without this high level of death? I think it's a really good question. When I think back to Netanyahu funding the creation of Hamas in Palestine, trying to create some instability, I think, in the region so that Israel can continue to occupy more land, I think it's a problem he's kind of created himself. And so when you have 1,400 Israelis killed by Hamas, by a group of people that a lot of folks in Israel understand to be killing them with no reason, when I believe quite strongly that the people in Palestine have no way of fighting back the occupation for the simple fact that they don't have an army, they don't have a military. And so when you have 31,000 Palestinians killed in one year in 2018, when they tried to peacefully protest the occupation, you have to understand that the attack of Hamas was in response to an occupation that's lasted for 75 years. So if I was the Israeli government and I genuinely cared about the security of the hostages in Gaza, I would not bomb them. Now we have reports that 50 of those hostages have been killed by Israeli airstrikes. If I cared about the people living in Israel, I would not be bombing neighborhoods where the hostages likely are. And if I really cared about Israel, I would not respond with retaliation because that could lead to greater escalation of the conflict and retaliation from neighboring countries like Iran, which we know is getting involved in proxy wars in the region. So Israel's appropriate response at that point when 1,400 have been killed, and we know quite recently 31,000 Palestinians have been killed in just one year, the response should be, let's have peace talks. Let's talk about a negotiation. Let's draw lines in the sand so that this doesn't happen again. That would be what is best for the Israeli people. I think the Netanyahu regime has put the Israeli people at risk by continuing to take Palestinian land and to create groups like Hamas to make Palestine unstable. So I think it's it's the right thing to do to do peace talks at a point where you have this terrorist attack, where they're so desperate to try and communicate that they want peace, that they want Israel to stop occupying their land and taking their neighborhoods and airstriking them. I just feel like this situation is more complicated than saying Palestine has been occupied by Israel for 70 plus years when the Jewish people are historically displaced people. I mean, you can go back all the way to the 60s and uh, the 70s, and I don't mean the 1960s and 1970s, um, when the Jews were displaced after the first Jewish-Roman War. So I just feel like this goes back way further than perhaps the Palestinian side wants to admit. So it's a little bit more complicated than just saying that Israel is responsible for this or that Hamas was only doing this in retaliation for this unfair genocidal occupation. This is something that really goes back thousands of years. I think both people have a legitimate claim to the land there. Um, so just telling Israel to go for peace talks and not retaliate militarily after 1,400 people are slaughtered um, innocent civilians are slaughtered, I don't think is uh, is fair to them to say that they should be the ones that have to be the bigger person in this scenario when they've just faced one of the deadliest attacks on their people. I think if, if Israel had remained within the land that was claimed by the Nakba in 1948, which was done so quite violently, I think we, we have to fault European countries for not allowing Jewish people to live peacefully in Europe uh, and then 
ultimately after World War II, deciding to ship them to Israel, which was a piece of land that was claimed by the British Empire. It wasn't even their land to give and make a claim with the United Nations that we need this resolution uh, to have this land be made so that Jewish people can go live there. Uh, we should be able to send them there. They should live there peacefully and we're gonna draw some borders. Then we have the Oslo Accords where we expand the borders a little bit for Israel. And then we have the continuation of land claims by Israel. So I think this is in response to those land claims and the creation of a state that disrupted the entire region uh, without properly taking into account what the people already living on that land want and believe. There was a time when uh, Jewish people and Palestinians before 1948 and after World War II coexisted on that land peacefully. And I think the United States, I think uh, the British Empire, currently the UK, I think Western countries have a stake in, in creating peace in the region because they in part created it because of that. And so I think it's, it's true to say that Jewish people should be able to live on this land peacefully. People native to Palestine should be able to live on this land peacefully. The Semites are native to this region. Palestinians are Semites. And I think we really need to have a reckoning with what that can look like without having it be uh, solely the state of Israel. It's very clear, I think Netanyahu wants that one state solution. And I think from a humanitarian perspective, all people can live there peacefully. And perhaps we need to scrap all of the lines we've drawn in the sand and really recognize that history for what it is, instead of messily drawing the lines after World War II and just accepting this to be the case, briefly dealing it with, with it in the Oslo Accords and then just militarily sponsoring the Israeli occupation for so long. It is a more complicated issue than just 1948 to present. Uh, it has a lot of colonial roots and I think the West really needs to reckon with all of those issues in these peace talks that I hope will come after a ceasefire that needs to happen very soon. Yeah, we'll see. It's going to be difficult to convince Israel, considering Hamas has violated pretty much every ceasefire they've ever had in history. But we'll see. I mean, obviously, we always hope for peace in these types of situations and also hope that the U.S. doesn't get dragged into another world war. Uh, fingers crossed, I guess, but I'm not optimistic. More rising after this. Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips is challenging Joe Biden for the presidency. He announced his run yesterday, telling CBS's Robert Costa he has to. Let's watch. I am. I have to. I think President Biden has done a spectacular job for our country, but it's not about the past. This is an election about the future. I will not sit still. I will not be quiet in the face of numbers that are so clearly saying that we're going to be facing an emergency next November. This as President Biden's job approval rating support among Democrats dropped to its lowest point yet. According to Gallup, it dipped 11 percentage points in the last month, jumping from 86 percent to 75 percent among Democrats, his worst performance with the party to date. Democrats' downgrade knocked his overall approval rating to an abysmal 37 percent. Biden enjoyed poll numbers between 49 to 57 percent in the first eight months, but Gallup is showing that it has slipped ever since, hitting below 40% four times. The poll taken between October 2nd through the 23rd in the midst of the Hamas attack earlier this month, that same poll revealed Democrat sympathies are higher for Palestinians than for Israelis, a first, which could explain Biden's dwindling approval. It sharply, sharply fell following the September, October 7th attack, which Biden promptly promised to back Israel. So I think 
this is not surprising to me that Biden is slipping in the polls, not just because he's vowed to back Israel, but I think his whole handling of what's happened since October 7th, initially saying that there were 40 beheaded babies and then having that questions and then him admitting that he didn't have any evidence to support his earlier claim that he saw photos of it, that there was no confirmation of that. I think that really hurt uh, you know, Biden in the polls and the way that a lot of the Democratic base thinks about him. I think also they sowed a lot of anti-imperialist sentiment among their base when they were supporting the war in Ukraine. And I think a lot of that anti-imperialist sentiment carried over to people's thinking on the issue between Israel and Palestine and the land claims and the occupation and the blockade on Gaza. And so I think Biden shouldn't be surprised he's slipping in the polls, but I also don't think Dean Phillips is the response. I think for the same reasons a lot of Democratic voters don't wanna vote for Joe Biden, they won't vote for a Dean Phillips either. I honestly had never even heard of Dean Phillips before his announcement, so I was kind of surprised that he decided that he was the guy to take on Biden. I found the cognitive dissonance kind of amazing, though, between his claim that Biden has done a great job with, of course, the fact that voters don't want him to run again and also largely disapprove across parties of the job that he's been doing as president. It kind of implies that he thinks that the American voters are stupid, like they don't understand how great the Biden administration has been for them. And this has sort of been a consistent theme among members of the Democratic establishment, where they explain away these falling poll numbers as evidence that the media is somehow against them or isn't doing a good enough job of selling the successes of the Biden administration. And then when you ask about the successes, it's like, well, he passed legislation that nobody liked. I mean, it's truly mind-blowing to hear them try to uh, justify the lack of support for Biden. And so for him to come out and say, well, you know, he's done a great job, but it's not about the past, it's about the future, is honestly just baffling to me. My favorite part of the whole Dean Phillips thing is Politico reporting that among top Democrats behind closed doors, they're calling this campaign Dean Phillips midlife crisis. I think that's amazing <laughs> to just call it what it is. This is a vanity project. It could end his political career. He's another millionaire businessman with not a strong policy vision for the country. It seems like a midlife life crisis. It seems like this is the first time I'm agreeing with top Democratic strategists. And to be honest, with Biden sitting on, what is it, $91 million? That's a, a huge treasure chest to run his campaign. Dean Phillips is going to have a really tough time running against Joe Biden and joining this late in the race. And I'm in the Midwest right now. I'm in Iowa. And Dean Phillips is from the Midwest. He's not even well known here. People don't even know who he is here. So I don't think that can stop someone from becoming the United States president. But I think if you're going to run and you're going to be this kind of moderate middle of the road candidate, you at least need the backing of the establishment because you very clearly don't have the backing of the American people. Yeah, he definitely can't position himself as some kind of anti-establishment guy. And I think it's kind of funny. He's a, he is a millionaire, and he apparently started a gelato business. That's how he got all of his money, which is sort of like the perfect encapsulation of the Democratic elite, like a guy who just got rich selling gelato, I think is, is really funny. Kind of reminds me of the expensive uh, ice cream in Nancy Pelosi's freezer in the middle of the pandemic when she did her little, her little kitchen tour. Um, 
But yeah, I, I agree. Vanity Project, normally when people have a midlife crisis, they go out and buy a Corvette. And yet here he is deciding to run for president. I guess that's what you do when you have more money and power than, than you know uh, what to do with. But we'll see what happens. I'm curious to get your thoughts on the a little bit more about the Israel-Palestine conflict and why people are turning away uh, from Biden. So we know that Democrats have had solid footing among Muslim voters, but his perceived lack of support for Palestine could impact his run in uh, particularly the battleground state of Michigan, which has a sizable Muslim population. Voters in this voting bloc issued a stark warning for Democrats that they'll lose votes over Israel backing. Moreover, House Democrats from the Great Lakes state have refused to hold a vote condemning Hamas for lobbing the brutal attack earlier this month, killing 1,400 people. So according to the AP, some Michigan voters are particularly peeved that the state's governor, Gretchen Whitmer, skipped a pro-Palestine rally in Dearborn, one of the biggest Muslim and Arab community uh, enclaves in the United States. But he did not attend one, or he did attend one that was pro-Israel. So attending this pro-Palestine, or refusing to attend this pro-Palestine rally uh, in a community where there's a huge Muslim and Arab population, but then going to a pro-Israel community. I think a lot of progressives, especially those who are Muslim, but especially those who are young, this is a defining issue for a candidate and someone who's really framed themselves as a progressive hero. I think this is really going to hurt, uh, I'm sorry, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, yeah, as a candidate. If, if you want the progressive vote, if you want Democrats' votes on this issue, you're going to need to adjust how you behave in public. People are paying attention. And I think this is going to be a decisive issue for the candidate, not just because of how this issue polls among uh, Arab and Muslim voters, but how it polls among young voters, which have delivered a lot of seats for Democrats across the country. Yeah, what I wanted to ask you is, is it enough to stay neutral in the conflict, I guess you could say, because my general position on it is that this is a thousand-year-old land dispute. Um, I think both sides have behaved heinously, first with obviously Hamas's attack on October 7th, then you have Israel responding with the sort of inordinate bombing of Gaza. Um, is it enough to say the U.S. shouldn't be involved because it's not directly in our interest, they need to figure it out themselves? Or do you think that Biden has to take an actively pro-Palestinian stance? Because when I see some of these protests and I see uh, left-wing activists papering over the posters of people who are held hostage by Hamas with the word occupier or ripping the flyers down, or I see them burning the Israeli flag. I don't want any part of that. I think if you're a candidate and you want the progressive voter, you want the Democratic vote, I think right now you need to hold the position that you don't support what Netanyahu's government is doing, that you don't support war crimes being committed, that at the very least, you don't support the carpet bombing and the blockade on Gaza. I mean, we have the Israeli government admitting to committing war crimes and the United States funding them. I think the bare minimum is to not break the Leahy Act as a law, which suggests that the United States cannot send funds to another country that is committing human rights violations. I think that's the bare minimum for a lot of Democrats. I think uh, Jewish Voice for Peace has been a really good advocate on this issue and explaining to candidates where they'd like for them to stand and that it's very clear to them that supporting the Netanyahu regime does not mean that you support Israeli or Jewish people necessarily. And so I really think that that's the bottom line, that's the bare minimum for a candidate. If you say that you're not going to support Israel's you know, terrible carpet bombing of Gaza, continuing to give them aid while they continue to take more land, you have to support no more expansion from Israel, I think, 
bottom line. You have to support a ceasefire and a humanitarian pause. And you can't keep giving Israel's military aid. I think that's the floor for a lot of Democrats. And I think the more progressives would like the United States to actually change how they side on this issue in a similar way to how the U.S. did on the issue of South African apartheid. For a long time, we were supportive of the apartheid government in South Africa. And then we said, you know what? This is actually wrong. This is actually an occupation. The people that we have been calling terrorists who, by the way, did commit acts of violence. They did bomb people to get their point across that they needed the apartheid to end, that they were living under an occupation. Uh, they were considered terrorists. And then the United States said, OK, we're, we're now recognizing that you're freedom fighters and we're going to have Nelson Mandela be president. and We're going to change how we feel about this. The U.S. only did that after the entire international community changed their view. So I think a lot of people who are progressives and Democrats and who vote in the direction of anti-war and peace would really like the administration to have that pivotal moment like it did in South Africa with Palestine today and really fight for peace in the region and really get a lot of that Palestinian land back. We have Gaza separate from the West Bank now. The way that that land has changed over many, many years since the Nakba in 1948, I think is something that the United States would like their government to reckon with. It's a very different Israel from the Israel that was created in 1948. And I really think the United Nations need to, needs to come together and address what kind of a solution we can have for peace in the region, not support uh, the continued bombing by Israel and vetoing a ceasefire on the floor of the United Nations. The Biden administration is very far from, I think, even where the floor is for a lot of Democrats. I know we're going to get into this more later in the program, but for now, we have to take a quick break and we'll be back with more Rising. Some interesting new video footage has come to light of Democratic Representative Jamal Bowman removing warning signs before reportedly pulling a false fire alarm in a House office building last month, which he pleaded guilty to yesterday. Bowman says he has struck a deal with D.C. Attorney General Brian Schwab to have the fire alarm expunged from his record once he pays a fine. You know, pay the fine three months from now, it'll be dismissed and I'll be able to just continue to serve my district. You mean it'll be dismissed, like it'll be expunged from your record? I believe so, yes. That's the deal? Yes, yeah. With Capitol Police? Uh, ACD, the, the, the DCAG. Okay. Yeah. Here's House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries answering questions on Jamal, Jamal Bowman's actions last month. Bowman obviously went through the arraignment process this morning. I'm curious, there's a censure resolution that's been introduced against him. Is what he's done and admitted to in court worthy of censure? Not in my view. So I think this is a very interesting case. Now that we have this footage of him removing the emergency signs, it's not just that he was trying to get through the door and he thought that pulling the fire alarm would open it. I made an excuse for Jamal Bowman having grown up near New York City and taking the subway dozens of times. Oftentimes people, in, instead of going through the revolving door, they leave through what is labeled the emergency exit and no alarm sounds. It seems that this wasn't that kind of a case. I will say, he did admit he was rushed and trying to get to the vote. And perhaps he pulled the fire alarm because he thought he would miss the vote on the floor of Congress, to which I say, at least he is dedicated to being on the floor of Congress when there is a vote. We can't say that for many members of Congress. I would like to believe that's why he did this. 
Uh, maybe. He didn't look particularly rushed in that video, though. He's kind of meandering around, and the claim that was made in terms of the explanation of his actions when we first heard about it was that he pulled the fire alarm and was so panicked that he started running away to try to get to the vote. And I don't see him running in this video. I mean, every explanation that we've heard about this has been utterly ridiculous. The first that he thought the fire alarm would open the door, which has never been the case in, in basically any uh, instance of modern history where there's been an emergency exit. Then there was the explanation that the sign that was on the door must have been confusing because it was labeled emergency exit and apparently Jamal Bowman can't read. Um, but then it turns out he actually took the sign off the door and never even tried to exit through the door that he was supposedly trying to open, just left the scene of the crime. Everything about this is absurd. I don't know what his reasoning was. Was he trying to delay the vote? I don't know. Um, I think. The only reason that I would err on the side of that not being his motivation is that he wanted the vote to go through because it ended up being on the side that he wanted it to go. But I just can't think of anything else reasonable or rational to explain what he was doing here. Yeah, I think uh, Congress was a dumpster fire at the time of pulling the fire alarm. So is it justified for that reason alone? No, probably not. I was surprised that we saw this escalate to the point of going to the DA's office. I understand that this is a dangerous thing to do, right? Everyone says don't shout fire in the movie theater. Apparently, don't pull the fire alarm in the halls of Congress. I think it, it could be dangerous, right? Everyone rushing to get out, everyone's security personnel trying to figure out what's going on. It hasn't been exactly a smooth few years for the folks working to protect the Capitol. So I think, yeah, there are a lot of reasons why you shouldn't pull a fire alarm if there isn't a fire. But I think it's the proper handling of the situation to give him a fine, given that no one was hurt. Uh, it seems that he wasn't doing this for malicious reasons, regardless of whether or not we know the real reasons. But I think it's the proper handling of this uh, to issue a fine. I think that fines as punishment aren't great because it seems that if you are poor and you cannot pay the fine, you face jail time and you shouldn't go to jail for just not having the money. Uh, but I think in this case, we know what Jamal, Jamal Bowman's salary is, and I think it's justified to give him a fine and expunge this from the record after three months, given he doesn't pull another fire alarm. Yeah, I would hope not. He also used to be a principal at, I believe it was an elementary school. And after he initially pulled the fire alarm, people were circulating the rules in terms of how it applies to the students at his school if they were to pull a false fire alarm. And it said that they could either be suspended or actually expelled from the school. So I don't know, maybe he should be held to the same standard that he held his students to, considering they were much younger and he's an adult and should know better and is representing the American people in Congress. He should have some level of rational sense, but alas, politicians have proven repeatedly time and again that they don't even have even a modicum of common sense. I think the bigger story for me here beyond Jamal Bowman's actions was how quickly his colleagues came to his defense and tried to come up with all of these crazy explanations for what he did, tried to say that it was no big deal, tried to say that he was just rushing to the vote and he didn't know what he was doing. And then the video comes out and immediately debunks all of it. I think it's a good reminder 
to all of us uh, of how political parties play this game with each other on Capitol Hill. They're so quick to blindly defend each other, to make excuses for just about anything if it's someone who's seen as being on their team. And that type of tribal mindset comes at the expense of the American people who knew that they were being lied to about something as silly as pulling a fire alarm. Yeah, I think it's interesting that all of the Democrats came to his defense. It makes me wonder if this was a premeditated thing, if they had some kind of a plan. And because I'm sure Jamal Bowman has sit across a desk from a student who has pulled a fire alarm and heard the reasoning, you know, I pulled the fire alarm because I had a test coming up I wasn't prepared for and I didn't want to take it. So I decided to disrupt the entire school so that I could take it tomorrow after I study. He's probably heard the reasons. He could have been the one to talk to Hakeem Jeffries and other Democrats and say, listen, they're going to scheme some more. This vote might not go our way if we give them more time to convene with each other. So here's my plan. I'm going to go pull the fire alarm. It could have been a plan that they came up with together. It's just too weird to assume that Jamal Bowman was walking through the hallway and just randomly decided, you know what would be fun? is if I pulled the fire alarm <laughs> right before this vote. It just doesn't make any sense. And I think there's probably some more scheming going on here, some more strategy behind this uh, than it was just a mistake. Yeah, the other problem was that after he pulled the fire alarm, Jamal Bowman walked past seven uniformed Capitol Police officers and didn't think to say, hey, guys, it was me. I'm so sorry. It was a mistake. I didn't mean to pull it. It's a false alarm. Instead, he just went right past them and let them to their own devices to try to figure out what the heck was going on. And to your point, this is a government building. This is a building that requires top-notch security hasn't always been the best in the past. Um, on the January 6th riot, for example, Capitol Police found themselves quickly overwhelmed and unprepared for what happened on that day. So you know that they're going to take something like this incredibly seriously. They're going to have major concerns about what's going on. And this wasn't uh, the Capitol building. I believe this was one of the House office buildings, which makes it even stranger because you're less likely to have tourists in there. It's more likely to be a member of an office or their staff member, in which case you would think it would be less likely for a false fire alarm to be pulled. But knowing what we do about politicians, maybe it's actually more likely. Yeah, I'm a fan of fire alarm gate. I think it's one of the more interesting of the recent controversies in the halls of Congress. What an absolute mess this vote for speaker has been. Uh, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of members of Congress were sleep deprived and not in their best mental state. You know, it could have been an intrusive thought from Jamal Bowman that he decided to act on. It could have been like, you know, I've always wanted to do this. I haven't thought of him as this kind of chaotic, neutral individual as far as moral aligns, alignments go. Uh, but maybe, maybe he just wanted to see what would happen. And it was an intrusive thought from a sleep-deprived Jamal Bowman. But I think going back to the strategy... Is Jamal Bowman the guy for the job? I mean, he has a background in organizing. Uh, direct action is a part of organizing. Would he lose votes in his district from doing this? I think he would be the guy for the job if I were to convene members of Congress and be like, all right, one of us has to do this. It can't be our staffers because we'll have to fire them. It has to be one of us. <laughs> I can really see this being game planned. Yeah, I actually can, too. And, you know, based on people I've talked to about Jamal Bowman, they don't really identify him as the sharpest tool in the shed. So it would make sense for him to be the sort of convenient fall guy who was willing to go along with whatever leadership told him to do and just play dumb because maybe he actually is. We'll be back with more Rising after this.
The moderators for the third GOP presidential debate have been announced. The NBC-hosted showdown will be led by Lester Holt and Kristen Welker of NBC News and Hugh Hewitt, former Reagan administration official and regular Fox News political commentator. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie are the four candidates who have qualified for the debate, the campaigns told Axios. To qualify, candidates must poll at least 4% in two national polls or 4% in a national poll in one early state poll after September 1st. The debate is set to take place on Wednesday, November 8th in Miami, Florida, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You might remember the host Kristen Welker, who hosted the final debate of the 2020 presidential election between the incumbent Republican President Donald Trump and now President and former Vice President Joe Biden. A recent 538 poll has Donald Trump with 56.9% of the vote, DeSantis with 14.1%, Haley with 8%, Ramaswamy with 5.8%, and Christie with 3.1%. So Christie maybe got lucky getting some of those polls at at least 4%. I'm curious, what do you make of this current pool of candidates as someone who's a conservative? What do you make of Ramaswamy, Haley, DeSantis, Trump, and I guess Christie as well? At this point, the primary is is Trump's to lose, right? I mean, the idea that any of these four candidates are going to leverage their way up to Trump's level on this debate stage, I think is pretty ridiculous. Now, that's not to say that there shouldn't be a primary process. That's obviously the fair thing to do to let the voters decide. But if the polling is even half correct, then Trump is running away with this thing, and all of this is really just a formality. I'm really troubled by the fact that the Republican National Committee decided to pick Lester Holt and Kristen Welker to moderate this debate. These are not fair journalists. These are people who have shown themselves to be biased towards the Democratic Party, whether it was Lester Holt's antagonistic attacks on former President Donald Trump in the debates in 2016, or whether it was Kristen Welker during Trump's debate with Biden in 2020. She actually cut off former President Donald Trump from talking about the Hunter Biden laptop, claiming that it wasn't verified, which was absolutely patently false. The laptop was verified and has been so since then by The Washington Post and The New York Times. But she wouldn't even let him talk about it on the debate stage. And it was really the first time that he had the opportunity to bring that message directly to the public. She also claimed in a recent interview with Trump that no Democrats have supported abortion up until the moment of birth, which is another lie, because Kathy Tran in Virginia, a state delegate had introduced a bill that would allow exactly that, and that bill was then supported by Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. So the idea that she's going to give any of these candidates a fair shake is ridiculous, and the idea that the RNC should be having their primary process perhaps tainted by left-wing biased journalists, I think, is, is absurd. Um, the primary process is for the Republican voters, the Republican base, to hear about the issues that matter to them. And unfortunately, at the last debate, we had the same issue where we had a Univision reporter asking biased questions that had nothing to do with the interest of the Republican voters and ultimately distracted from these candidates' ability to make their case to conservatives and the issues that they care about. So I don't even see that a lot of Republican voters are going to tune into this debate because they probably have the foregone conclusion that it's going to be an attempt to knock all of these candidates down in anticipation of a general election as opposed to actually 
getting information for primary voters. It's a really interesting perspective and a big problem how much power media has to determine how primaries go, not just being able to ask the questions for the debates, but also being able to control how many stories each candidate gets, what their coverage looks like, if it's a household name or not, for a person to vote for one candidate over another in a primary is a big factor and the mainstream media has the power to determine that. I think the internet is changing some of that dynamic, but I think a better host would probably be someone like Andy Cohen. And if you don't know who that is, Andy Cohen is the host who delivers the very good confessionals. I don't know if you can call it that, but it's a, a convening of all of the members of the Real Housewives of whatever chapter of the Real Housewives across the country. And they all talk about all of the drama that happened that season. And he does a very good job facilitating the debate and actually giving everyone a chance to respond to the questions that are asked, which I think is something the American people are very hungry for. I think Andy Cohen should host a presidential debate. I think anyone but mainstream news commentators would be a good pick. I really think when we consider the democratic process, the debates are a huge part of that. And to have mainstream media fund them and put them on and determine the questions, uh, it's, it's a conflicting interest with the democracy and giving voters a fair chance to decide which candidate represents them the most. Yeah, and Lester Holt, when he was given an uh, Edward R. Murrow Award, said infamously that fairness is overrated. Um, so he apparently ascribes to the school of journalism that believes that there's no such thing as covering both sides fairly, that journalists actually should pick a side based on what they determine the truth to be, as opposed to just presenting information to the public and allowing them to decide. And the other problem I have with this debate process is why is this being held in Miami, Florida? That's home turf for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. You're basically giving him an unfair advantage because when people watch these debates, one of the things that they're internalizing is the reaction from the crowd. Whether they should or not is a different question we've talked about before, how these crowds are pretty much overwhelmingly made up of both donors and staff members and otherwise uh, political officials as opposed to grassroots and uh, grassroots individuals and other you know, lower level voters, I guess you could say. And so when you have a debate that's being held in the home state of a current governor who is overwhelmingly popular, that debate hall is going to be filled probably with a lot of his supporters. And so he's going to get applause whether he deserves it or not, which could make the other candidates look negative even if they perform well. So I think that's just setting up an unfair situation I have to wonder if the RNC did that intentionally. It would be a much more fair process, in my opinion, if they held these debates in various locations where none of these people had some kind of home field advantage. Um, so having it in Miami is a problem. The moderators are a problem. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons to be troubled as a conservative with how this whole thing is going down. Pivoting to another topic, Donald Trump came for the judge in his New York civil trial, saying in a truth social post that the judge has gone crazy in his hatred of Trump. Now, in this case, we have uh, basically this judge claiming that Donald Trump has overvalued many of his properties for the sake of getting loans. And there have been questions raised thus far about the judge's own valuation of some of these properties, namely that he said Mar-a-Lago was only worth something like $18 million, um, even though the property alone would probably be worth something like $300 million. So I actually err on Trump's side here that this judge is, is being incredibly unfair to him. 
Yeah, I think it's an interesting statement, someone facing criminal accusations to say this judge hates me. Donald Trump, I think, is getting a taste of how much power judges have in our criminal justice system. It's like rolling the dice, which judge you get to hear your case, whether it's an arraignment or what have you. One judge can say, guess what? Same exact crime as another judge, but I'm going to put you uh, in, in jail for six months, no cash bail. Another judge could, you know, set bail at a very low number and that same person could walk free. There's so much human decision making that goes into our judicial process. I don't think the answer to that is what a lot of people have said. And it's uh, that we have AI replacing a lot of the decisions that are made by judges now. So we have some consistency. I think the human element is important, but I think we've got to be a lot more careful about how we appoint federal judges. I think the confirmation process for federal judges needs to be more robust in a democracy. I think Trump, you know, probably feels this way because things didn't go in his favor in the initial hearing in this case. Uh, and I think he's got a lot of legal troubles happening right now and probably has a general distaste for our judicial system and penal system as a whole. But I think as someone who appointed many federal judges, he's now getting a taste of his own medicine and really seeing what it's like when you have these people with so much power making decisions that can determine the outcome of an election, but also his personal life. And him storming out of the courtroom this week, I think, is a demonstration of that frustration. Yeah, I think it's also uh, a reminder of the fundamental problem of what happens when we decide to prosecute political opponents and the necessary bias that comes in through that process. And uh, Trump is definitely bearing the brunt of that in quite a few of these indictments that we, of course, will be following here at Rising. We'll be back with more after this. New House Speaker Mike Johnson is already calling out his own axis of evil. In a new interview with Sean Hannity, the congressman from Louisiana eagerly prescribed Russia, China, and Iran to be the greatest adversaries of the United States. By the leaders of Iran, that they themselves may get involved in a conflict. If that happens, correct me, you think I'm wrong. I would bet. I would say all bets are off in the Middle East. We could have a full-out war in the Middle East. Israel at the center of it, and at that point, if Israel's existence is put in jeopardy, I don't think Prime Minister Netanyahu, who I've known for almost 30 years, I don't think there's anything he won't do to preserve and protect his country from people that have committed their lives to destroy it. He has to do that, and around here, people throw around the phrase existential threat. They have an existential threat every day. I mean, their neighbors want to eliminate them and wipe them off the map. So Prime Minister Netanyahu is resolved. I've, I've spent time with him personally. I know him as well. Uh, I, I think he's a strong leader at, at this important time, and I, I think he's going to do what is necessary. And, and the, America will back him up. I mean, they tell us when we're in Israel, and you've been there, and they, they say the reason that we are able to sustain ourselves and survive is because everyone knows that our big ally is America. We know that Iran is directly tied to all this. These are Hamas and Hezbollah are, are proxies of Iran. And they're tied in now with Russia and China. I mean, it is a new axis of evil. That's how we see it. And so it has to be addressed Would you accordingly. Say if Israel, with all the funding of terror and all these terror organizations, are they within their right to fight back and go directly at Iran? Of course. That was the first, as you noted, the first act of my speakership is that we pass that resolution to, to articulate that and make it very clear where we stand. Yeah. The, the House is back in business, and we're going to stand with Israel. 
Johnson is facing his first big test of the speakership as he looks ahead at a looming government shutdown deadline. Government funding is set to run out on November 17th, making the next three weeks critical in figuring out what to do about this ongoing obstacle Congress is facing. Meanwhile, Johnson's new role is sparking outcry among critics due to his conservative views. President of the Human Rights Campaign Kelly Robinson spoke out about Johnson's election to the speakership, writing on X, Mike Johnson is someone who doesn't hesitate to scream his hatred for the LGBTQ plus community from the rooftops while introducing legislation that seeks to erase us from society and history. Everyone who voted for him will have a stain on their record. Here's what Johnson had to say to Fox News host Sean Hannity on his view on gay rights, referencing some of the Obergefell Supreme Court opinion. I am a rule of law guy. I made a career defending the rule of law. I respect the rule of law. When the Supreme Court issued the Obergefell opinion, that became the law of the land, okay? I respect the rule of law, but I also genuinely love all people, regardless of their lifestyle choices. This is not about the people themselves. I, I am a Bible-believing Christian. Someone asked me today in the media, they said, it's a curious, people are curious, what does Mike Johnson think about any issue under the sun? I said, well, go pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. That's, that's my worldview. That's what I believe. So I think the question then becomes, you know, is this your view in your personal life that, you know, you live your life with the interpretation of the Bible, that it is wrong for a man to lay with another man or what have you? Uh, and does that, translate to your career legislatively? Do you also want to make laws banning pe people from getting married? It, it sounds like that might be the case for Mike Johnson. We're going to have to wait and see. You know, comparing, you know, you say tomato, I say tomato, Obergefell, Obergefell, this is a case that the Supreme Court, uh, or Obergefell, this is a case the Supreme Court has asked you know, we'd like to hear it again. We'd like to overturn this precedent. Even Clarence Thomas, someone who's in an interracial marriage himself, has called for a lot of these former cases protecting freedoms for people to marry different people socially, uh, that they want to hear cases again and potentially overturn them. We know the court's very different today, but to have someone as Speaker of the House, highest position of power in Congress, also sharing views that maybe we need to overturn some precedents is something that I think scares a lot of members of the LGBTQ plus community. I don't think that's what he was saying at all. When he references the rule of law, I think what he's referring to there is that his personal position is that he opposes gay marriage, but that he respects the Supreme Court's opinion, and therefore he's not going to try to challenge that in any way legislatively. Whether a conservative legal group decides to bring a challenge to the Supreme Court to look at Obergefell again, that would be up to them, but it wouldn't be under the purview of Johnson as being Speaker of the House. Yeah, I think... A lot of people will be relieved to hear that. I wouldn't think he would receive unanimous support if he was taking those kinds of extreme positions, right? We had Hakeem Jeffries say that there's some bipartisan, you know, agreement there that Mike Johnson isn't the worst pick. It seems that they like him more than they would have liked a Jim Jordan in the position. And the way he speaks, he sounds like a leader. I think best case scenario, we just have someone in that position so that we can fund the government again. Now, his support uh, for Israel, saying that he would support Israel striking back directly at Iran, that could spark a World War III. That's concerning. That's deeply concerning, especially when we think about what's happened in the past 
when they've tried to have these stopgap bills, they've gone back and rebudgeted former funds that are allocated to the Pentagon. We had the recent Pentagon appropriations bill become a huge contentious point around funding for Ukraine. It seems that a lot of Republicans serving in the House feel differently about Israel, but I can definitely see a world where there's more funding given to Israel. And we only have nine members of Congress that voted against that resolution that he referenced, vowing their support to Israel. So that's 97.9% of representatives in the House. And yet we have only 41% of people in the United States that even support the United States giving weapons to Israel. So I think that's an issue that he's going to have to grapple with. I think that could hurt him for re-election in his district, but now he's become a household name and it seems that he's following the administration. And I think that's really concerning for a lot of Americans. Yeah, I immediately had an issue, particularly with his comments about Ukraine and how he wants to send more funding to Ukraine, because previously when his name was in contention for speaker, he actually expressed skepticism about increased Ukraine funding and suggested that he wants better accounting of that money. And then once he got into the speaker position, all of a sudden he's calling for more. And I think one of the first challenges of his speakership is, will he move to try to separate out aid to Israel and Ukraine? Because President Biden has called for those aid packages to be bundled together um, because he wants people to feel obligated to support one or the other because of the inclusion of the other. And so Mike Johnson should separate these out. He should have Congress people have to go on the record whether they support funding for Israel and separately whether they support increased funding for Ukraine. Because to your point, there are a lot of Republicans who would support increased funding to Israel, but not Ukraine. And so piecing those together into a bundled package puts people in a difficult position of feeling obligated to vote for a bundled package, whereas they might not support one or the other if they were separated out. So Mike Johnson should absolutely make sure that these packages are voted on separately, uh, aid to Ukraine and, U and aid to Israel. But based on his comments there to Sean Hannity, it doesn't seem like he's interested in doing that. And that seems like a reversal on his previous position and one of the reasons why people supported him going into the speakership. He's also one of the first socially conservative speakers from the Republican side in decades, which is a big deal for so social conservatives and for the more right-wing part of the Republican caucus. And so they were very excited about his speakership. Then they saw some videos on Twitter where he was talking about white privilege, and that raised some red flags for conservatives as well. So we'll have to see if he actually ends up walking the walk based on what people believed his positions to be prior to getting voted in. Yeah, an absolute mixed bag that Mike Johnson, his position on abortion has gotten him some attention as well supporting a national ban, which is something a lot of Americans have had to grapple with since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And I think a lot of Americans are on the side of, of freedom of choice, but believe in some sort of a threshold, uh, a certain amount of weeks before, you know, there's no longer abortion available. A lot of folks are against the late-term abortions. And I think Mike Johnson is going to have to grapple with his position. 
uh, and maybe come to a compromise? Because it sounds like a lot of the House Republicans want to bring a bill of that nature to the floor. Lindsey Graham has spoken about it, reversing his earlier position, saying that we're push pushing this issue back to the states. So that's another thing people are thinking about around Mike Johnson's election to the speakership here. And I think you're right to point out that the Freedom Caucus, Matt Gates specifically, was talking about piecemealing how they vote on, on budgets, how they vote on whether or not to fund Ukraine versus Israel, rather than lumping all of their votes into one bill where they agree on a new budget or adjusting where funding is allocated for these stopgap bills. I really think members of Congress need to own their votes on each individual issue. I think that's a really important thing for transparency in our democracy. I think a lot of members of Congress get away with far too much by voting on these packages in a lump sum. And I would hate for us to be in a world where Mike Johnson comes up with some lame excuse, which is, you know, it would just take too long if we were to do that. And we really need to fund the government right now so it doesn't shut down. And then we have this whole thing again where Matt Gates might introduce another motion to right. ask the speaker. Uh, and I hope he would do so. I hope he would hold them accountable for that. I think he absolutely would. I, I think he would be more than willing to do that if Mike Johnson ends up not living up to his promises. And Mike Johnson is going to have a difficult balancing act because he not only has the support of the Freedom Caucus, which he has been an ally to for, I think, the entirety of his time in Congress, but he's almost certainly had to make some concessions to the moderate wing of the Republican Party as well. And we'll see how that affects his ability to go through this process while only having a slim majority, as well as knowing that probably most of what they pass is not going to get through the Senate or signed by President Joe Biden. We're going to take a break and be back with more Rising after this. Tennessee Congressman and UFO enthusiast Tim Burchett went into a skiff at the Department of Defense to be briefed on much-anticipated secret information about unidentified anomalous phenomena known as UAPs including how the administration keeps tabs on them. On this UFO podcast, he signaled it was a letdown. Let's watch. Didn't really have any real hopes because that's what we're getting. I told somebody it's like um, all these guys are like, when I talk to them, they're like looking down the barrel of a 22 rifle. It's just very narrow and very straight. And they're honestly telling, I feel like they're telling the truth within their limited scope, but it is very compartmentalized. Whistleblower David Grush was not in attendance. When asked if people pulling the strings in the background are blocking info from coming out, this is what Burchett said. You know, since 1947, they've told us these things don't exist. And then now they tell us they do exist. And then, but now nobody can tell us where we can look to see if they see where they exist. You know, it's just a, it's like peeling off the layers of an onion. You get down and you get another layer. I think for a long time it's been faceless names that have maybe tried to get this moved forward in the past, whereas now we do have yourself, uh, Representative Luna, and others actively trying to push this forward. So you're always going to be in the firing line of the, the social media world and the UFO fans as such. What what do you think you can do now with your colleagues to keep pushing forward? Well, we just keep pushing at our government level, but until somebody walks out of one of these... Um, uh, quasi-governmental businesses, which is which is where they're at, if they if if they even exist anymore, um, they're in these these businesses that so we don't have a we we can't get to them through FOIA. They're government funded, 
contracts, but FOIA, of course, is Freedom of Information Act where we can get a hold of. And what's going to have to happen is somebody's going to have to walk out with with material or physical evidence or something like that or and um, and bring it forward. Burchett confirmed that the new speaker, Mike Johnson, is committed to moving forward investigating UAPs. Well, that's some good news to come out of this. It sounds like Tim Burchett is one of the few Congress people who's actually taking this problem seriously. I was heartened by that previous hearing that they had where a lot of the Congress people were very open-minded about asking questions of the witnesses and what they had seen or what they had been privy to or heard from secondhand sources. But it seems like since then, the fervor has kind of died down and a lot of people have kind of forgotten about the UAP issue. They um, prepared for this hearing and then kind of just moved on. So very few people are involved, it seems, in continuing to investigate this, which is really a shame. Yeah, I think Tim Burchett has been very dedicated to this. I'm not surprised that the Department of Defense didn't show him anything that made him excited. I, I think of their perspective here. Would it be strategic or smart for them to show someone who's a UFO enthusiast who wants to tell the public about this what they have? I think he's right to say that any evidence the Department of Defense had doesn't exist anymore or it's located within a quasi-governmental organization. And I think that's why a lot of people, when they voted for Donald Trump, honestly did so because he talked about draining the swamp. A lot of the swamp is these quasi-governmental organizations. Why is it that an elected member of Congress has less information than someone who was never elected? Our democracy is quite frankly in peril. When you have people who want to share information with the general public who call for a FOIA request, a member, an elected member of the, of the U.S. Congress is asking for a FOIA request to get information from the government. That is insane that we have quasi-governmental organizations with that much power and that much information that they're keeping secret from people we've elected, quite frankly. Right. One of the benefits of being a member of Congress is your ability to get access to some of this sensitive information because you have that clearance. You have the ability to go into the skiff, and yet repeatedly we see that members of Congress are stonewalled when they try to access this information, whether it's the UAPs, whether it was information regarding alleged bribery from the Biden family. They get into these situations where they basically have to beg the FBI or other government organizations to give them information that they're requesting, and in some cases even have to sue for it. And a lot of private citizens have found themselves over the years submitting these FOIA requests. The government is allowed to deny these requests for any number of reasons. They come up with the most ridiculous excuses. Sometimes they ask for ridiculous sums of payment to process the reports that they send out to people. And then inevitably, a lot of people get involved in these multi-year lawsuits to try to get this information to come, up, come out. It's why there's so many uh, NGOs dedicated to helping submit and process FOIA requests because they know that average citizens, private citizens, often run into this brick wall. And so they just submit FOIA requests all day long, trying to get as much information as possible. It's one of the things that Judicial Watch, run by Tom Fitton, does so well, is getting these FOIA requests to actually be approved and processed by the government. Because otherwise, there's really no recourse for the average person to be able to get information that should be available to them from the government. And the UAP situation is just the latest example of that. Yeah, I think if Mike Johnson is genuinely dedicated to the UAP issue, Tim Burchett should push him to address how FOIA requests 
our finance, the personnel and resources it takes to get data and information for the people who request it should not be a burden to bear by the person who requests it. Many of the American people don't want this information to be secret in the first place. I know very few people who would vote for someone running for Congress or an elected position of power in the United States. Uh, very few people would, would vote for someone if they said they wouldn't share this information with the public. And so I think it's this paternalistic approach of we know better than all of you and we know what's better for you and what's best for the country and this information needs to be kept secret because it's a defense concern, it's a security concern. I really think that's not how our democracy was intended to function. I think it's just something a lot of people don't want to be a feature of our government, that it's really hard to get information about our government's processes. I think there's some kind of social contract we have uh, by living in and paying taxes in the United States that we should be allowed to know what our government's up to and what information they have about existential matters at that, UFOs and UAPs. Uh, and so I really would like to see members of Congress, Congress push more on this, also, because that precedent for FOIA requests matters for more than just UAPs and UFO investigation. The government has been very successful as well in what essentially amounts to a propaganda campaign to discredit every individual who comes forward as a witness in the UAP uh, story. I mean, you have them calling these people crazy, leaking information to places like The Intercept to claim that they are suffering from mental health issues or that their PTSD is the reason that they're coming forward about UFOs and talking about this phenomena. And they've made it so that anyone who acknowledges that UAPs might be real is crazy. And that's a big reason why I think a big part of the American populace is not tuned into this issue, because they've done such a good job, the government has, that is, and the, their friends in the mainstream media have done a great job of making this an issue that is reserved for people who are crazy, people who have lost their mind, people who are conspiracy theorists. And if you approach this even open-mindedly by saying that either, uh, either scenario could be true, these things are maybe craft that belong to other countries with technology we don't understand yet, or they are the result of extraterrestrial beings coming into um, in, onto Earth. Either one uh, could be likely um, if you're someone who approaches this with an open mind, but even those people are discredited and degraded by the regime who doesn't want people to question this at all. They don't even want people to be asking about it. And that is so classic from our government um, trying to control what people think and what they say um, for the sake of being able to control them in other ways too. Yeah, it's definitely a common narrative in mainstream media by journalists who are supposed to look at issues pretty objectively, consider what information would be useful to the people. This idea that unbiased journalism somehow means you represent the views of the Democratic and Republican parties is a sick perspective, that the political parties in the United States should have that much influence over what the conversation is as to what the news is and what information we're sharing. As journalists, you're accountable to the American people. And it seems to be the consensus that the American people want information from their government, especially in the case of UFOs and UAPs. And so it's unfortunate how much this establishment has controlled the conversation around something that's just a matter of human interest. And when I think about the common framing that you're either crazy or dumb or naive or childlike, if you care about the idea of extraterrestrial life, of life beyond Earth, it's insane because most scientists and most people who think about this issue carefully can't imagine 
a universe that's as vast as the one we live in where there isn't life beyond our planet. And so I really think that should be at the heart of this conversation. But mainstream media is afraid to have that conversation at all. That's going to do it for us this week. Jess, it was great to be back with you. And I hear that you're going to be in town next week. So that's exciting. I will. I'll get to see Amber Duke in person. Can't wait. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bye, and we'll see you next week.